Well, welcome to Hope Leads. I'm Wes Lane. Today, we've got a special treat for you. As you know, we usually interview men and women who are in some way doing remarkable work, generating hope in their own lives and in the community. Well, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, Mark Green, sought to discover what he called the spiritual roots of this city and state. He found the answer to that in a remarkable book entitled The Oklahomans, The Story of Oklahoma and Its People, Volume 1. And here's the quote from the introduction to that that he centered on as the spiritual root of this state. Quote, Oklahoma is a land of hope and the second chance, sometimes the last chance, close quote. So as Mark likes to put it, folks who were successful elsewhere didn't come to Oklahoma to compete in a land run. They came because they saw us as being their second or even last chance to make it. And that makes uh, for some remarkable stories of hope, even in ways that have nothing to do with uh, the land run, but, but, but however people came to this state. So today we're going to talk about some of those second and last chance people who overcome who overcame, rather, the odds to ultimately make this a state of hope. And to do that, I've asked my longtime dear friend and author of The Oklahomans, John Dwyer, to be my guest and share some stories of hope-dealing standouts that changed the world of their day and helped make ours what it is today. So, John, welcome aboard. Well, it is an honor to be with you and with your audience, uh, brother, and uh, thank you. Well, thank you. And, you know, before, you know, before we launch off with some of these folks that we're going to talk about, I, I just want to brag on you just, just a little bit here. Uh, first of all, you, you, the listeners, should know that Dr. Black, uh, Do, uh, Dr. Bob Blackburn, who's the executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society, called the book The Oklahomans, quote, the best book on Oklahoma history ever close quote. <laughs> That's pretty strong. It has some strong feelings there. Volume two is going to, by the way, going to be released later this year. But also, John, uh, both the Oklahomans and one of your novels, Short, Gla- Short Grass, which was a, a story that, that took it, taking place in the era of the Dust Bowl and in World War II uh, uh, period. It won, both of those things won the National Will Rogers Medallion Award Literary Contest for Western Literature. I mean, who'd have, who'd have thought a guy that I knew in college who I wasn't sure could spell at the time could actually could actually uh, uh, be be catching all these literary awards. It's been awesome. And so right now I know you've also got a book that, that's actually the sequel to Short Grass. And I've read I've read Short Grass by the way, folks, and and it was awesome. And I'm I'm looking forward. I'm list, I'm waiting for the audio version of Mustang, which is uh, as I said the the sequel. And it was the best-selling book in the state last summer. So that's a, or the best-selling fiction book, certainly. So uh, anyway, well, so let's get started here. Um, um, uh, John, what, uh, when you, when we think about the history of Oklahoma and, uh, and, and, and all of the people that have, had uh, transformative lives, whether they came here willingly or unwillingly. Uh, who, who are some of the folks that you think that that we ought to know something about? Well, I tell you, Wes, I was kind of afraid this would happen. You know, uh, 
for purposes of disclosure, Wes and I have kind of batted this around the last few days to try to make sure for one thing that, um, you know, I kind of know what I'm supposed to be doing here thematically with, with hope and all. And what I was afraid of was as soon as we got going that all of a sudden the adrenaline would kick in and a bunch of names would start coming to me that we hadn't even talked about. And, you know, uh, of course that happened, but, um, and don't you worry, just it's just whoever you think, John. I mean, I know you, you've just been pouring out names as we've talked about them. I mean, these are all just incredible, incredible people. And so you just, whoever it is that you think, let me not be uh, um, putting the, the stop button to it. Well, uh, you know, I think the for me, uh, 15 years ago, starting this project, I've learned more about Oklahoma history and putting together these two books than anybody that's ever going to read them or, or hear, you know, be taught them in a class. And if, if there's a, a preeminent theme of what I've learned, it's what you, you and Mark Green refer to as the land of the second chance. You know, every time I hear our state run down because we're low in this, or we're 46th in that or 48th in something else, or we're next to the bottom and, you know, some category that we don't, we don't want to be. Uh, I understand that we always want to, to do our best and endeavor to improve, but also know I've learned um, through all these many years of living with Oklahoma, its history and its people that this, that we were born of a group of people that were largely tough and poor and had nowhere else to go. And that theme resonates all the way through Oklahoma history, whether you're talking about uh, the native tribes that were forced to come, not just from the Southeast, you know, the big tribes we're familiar with, the Cherokees and Choctaws and so forth, but what we call in volume one of the Oklahomans, the second trail of tears, uh, those from the West and the North, uh, the, 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 the Comanche, the Cheyenne, the Kiowas, who were far different types of people. In fact, those tribes were often fighting against the, the, those natives that came from the East. And yet they too were brought to a place through history and, and consequences. And, and I would say ultimately the providential hand of God, they were brought to a place where they didn't want to be just as how about uh, moving the clock forward? How about um, uh, the African-Americans that, that, that got freedom at the end of the civil war? Well, that's great. What do we do now? When there's no one waiting there to help us, uh, the challenges for so many African Americans, once they had their freedom, were in a lot of cases even greater than those that they had before. Uh, going back to that first generation of freedom, many of those people came to Oklahoma because there was land available uh, and they hoped to have part in a society that they could actually be uh, not just participants but perhaps even leaders as opposed to the bottom rung on the ladder. Uh, you also had uh, white people from across the South whose lands had been burned out, whose, whose men had been killed in the war and maimed. You had a, just a tidal wave of, of white uh, Southerners that came out West in their own uh, Westward train along with the African-Americans. Moving it forward still further, uh, the Vietnamese boat people in, in the 20th century, thousands of them. Uh, and I tell you, uh, Wes, I encourage those listening to, if you, if you have Asian American friends, 
uh, of which we have many in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City and other communities, uh, get to know them and find out their stories. One of the things I've been blessed with teaching now, going on 15 years at Southern Nazarene University, history and ethics, is I met a lot of great Asian American, in particular young people, and sometimes not quite so young. They all have amazing story. It's either their story, such as the lady that told me that she was in college in Saigon, South Vietnam. Her father was a general in the South Vietnamese army. And then when the communists uh, overran the country and her brother was, was kidnapped, in effect, thrown into a truck by the North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, and hauled off to fight against the Khmer Rouge, and they never saw him again. Uh, the rest of the family was able, uh, after prison camp, after uh, pirates and many other uh, alarms and fears and sufferings to get across the Pacific Ocean to America. Ultimately, a Catholic priest helped them get to Oklahoma, and they have built uh, a future and a legacy here in Oklahoma City. And so whether you talk to the people, as I, as I have, that were on those boats, whether you talk to the people who are the children and the grandchildren of those people, as I've talked to many of them, and typically what those students will say is, well, you know, my grandparents never talk about what happened, but I know they lost and suffered a lot. And here I am in a college in freedom with a career on the horizon in a, in a safe community and an affluent home. And a generation or so ago, people were, were escaping for their very lives. And, and many didn't. You know, we don't realize that those boat people, they came across typically the ocean on boats that were commandeered by pirates. There, were, there was robbery, uh, rape, murder on those boats. So those are just a few examples as I, as I step back and think, you know, the theme of hope. Uh, to me, what makes that even more powerful is when it comes out of a context of hopelessness. Mm. Uh, and our state was started by a bunch of people across multiple generations, multiple races, initially multiple religions that uh, needed another chance because wherever they had been, it either had not worked out for them by their, by their own failures or someone else took it away from them. And one way or another, they got here. So our state, all the way through our history, is the, is the story of a bunch of people who had apparently hopeless futures in front of them. They came here, and through much tribulation, much conflict and challenge, uh, have found much hope. And now you have a state, and certainly we do have our challenges, we do have our problems, but one thing across the years and across no matter where I go, if I ask someone who either has moved to Oklahoma from somewhere else or has visited here for any amount of time or worked here, I ask, well, what's the, the main thing that stands out to you about Oklahoma? I don't think I've ever heard an answer other than the people are friendly. And that's remarkable to me, Wes, because it's not like this was a great, happy, easy place. I believe part of why the people here are friendly is because as a people, as a state, even individual lives, we've experienced so much brokenness, so much tragedy. And, you know, there wasn't much Oklahoma history taught for a long time after our, our, we became a state. Uh, people didn't know what had come before them. And I've come to the conclusion that's partly because the people that built Oklahoma 
had been through so much tribulation and sorrow, they didn't really want to talk about what had happened before. And it's taken us a little bit of time to come forward from that, to be able to look back and go, wow, look what these people sacrificed. Again, across racial lines, across even socioeconomic lines, across the timeline, uh, the common thread is most people paid a big price to get here and make it here. And I think that 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 suffering, whether we're talking the Dust Bowl, whether we're talking trails of tears, these tornadoes that keep coming back and ravaging the same towns like more over and over again, the bombing. Uh, how about the Tulsa race, whether you call it massacre, riot, war of the 1920s, it burned down the entire African-American section of Tulsa that was a thriving section in the 1920s over and over and over again. Uh, this state, if we face up to the truth, people have been through the meat grinder. And I think what's happened on the other end of that, by the grace of God, because people brought the Christian gospel here, that gospel has been melded and marinated into this history of loss and sorrow. And it's produced a people that largely have compassion and have heart, despite our imperfections, and we certainly have them. And I see that very different in some of our na- neighboring states. You know, nothing against, uh, I'm not going to pick on Texas first, but uh, <laughs> another one, uh, Louisiana, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and we were marveling at the difference. He told me that after Katrina, uh, what he saw in Louisiana, in particular in New Orleans and some of those environs, was it was kind of a uh, eat, drink, and, and be merry for, you know, tomorrow we may die. It was kind of like a let's party up even more. We survived and everything. Whereas, and you remember this well, I mean, you were, you and your wife, Lori, were very involved uh, in, in helping this city recover and even prosecute the evildoers from the Oklahoma City bombing. But, you know, we experienced a virtual religious revival after that bombing. People were broken and God gave us the mercy and the grace for a lot of us to turn to Christ finally in our brokenness rather than to leave just bitter and angry. So I'm sorry, I kind of went on real long there, but uh, no, 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 this, that w- that was rich because what you've done is you've set the table. You've set the table and really give, give our, uh, at least the listeners who are, are here from Oklahoma, uh, really a strong sense of, 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 of the why uh, of so many things that they hear. Well, let's, let's go back. Let's go back. You mentioned the trail, uh, actually a couple of trails of tears you mentioned. Uh, but let's, you mentioned there, there were some remarkable stories of, of hope, of men and women who just by what, whatever was within them, they just exuded hope and lifted up that level of hope to, within others. So start there. Well, you know, uh, the trails of tears, obviously, to, to, that is a an, an origin, a large origin story of this state. Uh, you know, there are other origin stories, and that's why, as you know, you were a history major, if I remember correctly, back in our undergrad days at OU. When you approach a large topic, especially as a as a Christian thinker, as we a Christian student, we uh, need to remember that our story is not everyone's, and vice versa. And so, when you when you approach a, a subject, uh, and again, this is something I'm constantly learning. I, I know our, our dear friend, uh, 
Pastor Clarence Hill talks about, you know, when you look at Oklahoma history, there's at least, he calls it two stories, and I would say at least two stories, depending on whose perspective you're, you're looking at. And of course, you can imagine the challenge when you try to write a, a history of the entire people when that history is comprised of multiple stories. But to me, that can make it all the more rich, all the more provocative, all the more memorable and thought-provoking. Because if I realize that Oklahoma has an incredible history, uh, the good, the bad, and the outrageous, or however you want to put it, uh, (laughs) but also that there are multiple tapestries woven through that, it takes some work. But if I stay after it, uh, ultimately, there are some themes that that run through it, but there are also so many different variations and gradations that uh, that can make it rather than just a quick study. That can make it an endless, uh, deep dive to find out. Well, okay, for instance, um, the Trails of Tears. Uh, you know, a secular telling of that story, and I think whether secular, Christian, or whatever, we would all agree that those were mournful events where people. Were, were forced to move from their ancient homelands to another part of the country. Now, I do and have learned in my own study is that, that nobody is, is, gets off scot-free here. For instance, um, some of those tribes that were moved here from the north and the west uh, or were put on reservations or located here permanently uh, that, that were the warrior tribes, the dominant tribes, um, people are surprised to find out, well, you know what? They didn't have one square foot of Oklahoma that they, that they ran roughshod over during their heyday that they did not take by force, typically from other tribes, from other weaker Native American tribes. So that can get you know, emotions flowing real quick if we start talking about these origin stories and who did what to whom. That's why I say it's good, especially as a Christian thinker, to keep an open mind to look at things from all their perspectives. And these Trails of Tears, the great Indian or Native republics, rather than, you know, they were called the civilized tribes for so long. I I, I like to refer to them as the great republics, Uh, the Choctaws, Chickasaws, Cherokees, Seminoles, and Creeks. They had founded their own uh, governments, their own written constitutions, they were business people. They had largely adopted uh, the Christian faith and they had assimilated uh, to a large degree, not by any means a total degree, into American society and culture. Well, they were forced nonetheless to come to a different country uh, in the old sense of the word country and uh, to Oklahoma, away from Tennessee, North Carolina, Alabama, wherever they were. And so what happened was it, we look back on that and we're typically told well, this was horrible. They were forced out here and then they just were decimated and they just declined once they got here. And again, none of us wish that had happened, but in the providence of God, some of the great thinking uh, visionary leaders of those tribes, uh, such as David Folsom of the Choctaws and others uh, that were Christian men and women, they looked at the, the plight of their tribe and they saw that not only were was the tribe and the members uh, suffering and in sorrow and heartbroken, but in many cases, it was those that were already Christians in those tribes that were the most broken because they, they had established an additional layer of community in the Southeast realms where they came from America so and they the, were being uprooted. Hey, hey, John, what, what, give us some, a date circa 
uh, for like David Folsom. So I take it he was obviously he's the chief of the Choctaw Nation uh, at the at, at the time of the Trail of Tears. Yes, was, exactly. The Choctaws oh. just that one tribe. Wes had multiple uh, trails or or uh, uh, trips, groups of people that came. They 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 split up largely into groups of one thousand apiece with a leader of which Folsom, Robert Jones, and others were leaders. They came in groups over the period of the early 19, or I'm sorry, 1830s in the Choctaws. The Trails of Tears largely were 1830s up into the 1840s was most of when that occurred. And you had Folsom, uh, and we have this, as I think you know, in volume one of the Oklahomans, we have a little sidebar that says, Folsom calls the missionaries west. Well, how politically incorrect is that? A uh, Choctaw chief, uh, calls upon the Baptist, Presbyterian, and other uh, white Christian missionaries to come with them because he saw how sorrowing his people were and that their best hope, uh, far from flourishing just to survive, was to have this Christian influence continue. And as you and I've talked about before, many of the natives of those tribes were not convinced of the Christian faith uh, until they got to Indian Territory, modern-day Oklahoma, and had seen those white missionaries uh, travel, suffer, get sick, and oftentimes die on the trail with them. Uh, and then that's when the Christian gospel became more real for them than the, the preaching and the words of it had been up to that point. So uh, th- this was an example. Then you have uh, arriving in Indian Territory, tribes like the Choctaws and the Chickasaws and the, and the Cherokees, who then... Uh, established themselves, built churches, built schools that were not only more Christian, but superior academically to those in the white-run states around Indian Territory, Texas and Arkansas and so forth. And within a generation, you have natives rising up from the tribe to become uh, the leaders, the pastors, the missionaries of their own tribes, and then going to other tribes and other areas. People like Charles Journey Cake, Chief of the Delawares, uh, John Jumper of the Seminoles, um, uh, Alan Wright of the Choctaws, who you know credited with uh, the name of Oklahoma, of uh, land of the red man or red people. So after not too long, you had the tribes in effect taking uh, the leadership of their own destinies in Oklahoma. That would be eighteen. 30s moving forward through the 40s, 50s, middle, later part of the 1800s. By the time of Oklahoma statehood, most of us don't realize this, you had uh, Native Americans, not necessarily full blood, but uh, uh, a lot of times 50% or more, such as one of our first two senators, uh, who was uh, 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 Charles Owen, I'm sorry, Robert Owen, was uh, half Cherokee, and he was a United States senator from 1907 on in Oklahoma. He was making decisions not just for the state of Oklahoma or particular tribes, but for the nation. So, so I think you know, that's, a, that's certainly an era that, that you look back and it was tragedy, but there was providential blessing and planning and a future vision resonating through all of that. Well, and you, you've named several people, you know, like Folsom and others that, that were clearly visionaries, and they and they and they gave people hope from a uh, for a better tomorrow. Uh, it, it, what so as we move forward towards closer towards today, 
uh, uh, not not two today, but but if we change an era, and, and so now you now you're coming, uh, you know, around the turn of the century, you're 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 during the time of land runs and and uh, statehood and and all that. Who are give us a, a person or two and 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 tell us why why what was it about them that brought brought forth that hope that generated hope. Well, and, and of course, with all these people we're talking about, I hope the listener will understand that even if I sound animated and sometimes real sure of myself on these things, I understand I haven't walked uh, the trails uh, and the experiences that other people uh, have. Uh, so it's not that I pretend that I totally understand what all they went through. Uh, I'm a storyteller. You know, my great-grandfather was O'Dwyer. And he came over on a boat by himself as a teenager from Ireland. And we seem to have both the Irish people and certainly the O'Dwyers and now Dwyers have that storytelling gene in us. And that that ultimately is what uh, I see my calling uh, as far as to be a trumpet of hope for people is to tell stories that hopefully resonates with uh, the Christian gospel, the cycle of life from you know birth life, death, resurrection, and then another start and a better start. So uh, I hope that as I, I talk about this, and on that note, when you move into the 1900s, the 20th century, Oklahoma has one of the, the great galleries of American or world history of African-American heroes. And most of us of any race, uh, I had one of my students, an African-American young man, he went and uh, guest taught in, in an area school and African-American community uh, not long ago, uh, and I'll say it's in the Oklahoma City area, and he had learned about Clara Looper, who I refer to as the mother of the civil rights movement, a longtime teacher in the Oklahoma City area, Dungy, uh, John Marshall in Oklahoma City, and, um, you know, she was leading the sit-ins at Cat's Drugstore downtown Oklahoma City years before the more famous uh North Carolina ones that were in the early 60s that all the documentaries and movies talk about. Well, Clara Looper and her daughter and the local NAACP Youth Council were downtown in Oklahoma City in the 50s doing that. Well, um, he talked to these children at this largely African-American school around Oklahoma City, and he said, well, what do you all think about Clara Looper? To his shock, not one of those 30 children ever even heard of Clara Looper. Wow. It was from the same community that, you know, their grandparents probably were classmates of Claire's and were people that were on the front lines of helping her, um, you know, deliver really in on one level, one race, but really societally, uh, the constitutional rights of a race that were belated. And so... Uh, when you look at Clara Looper, you look at Roscoe Dungy, who was a generation or so before her, the early 1900s. He had the uh, Black Dispatch newspaper. He was one of the national leaders for uh, raising up the constitutional rights for African-Americans. Uh, he, was, he was a national leader of it. He used his newspaper in Oklahoma City and Oklahoma to proclaim a message of hope to people in his community that what we are now is not all that God created us to be. And there is a bigger and better vision. We should not fall short of that. At the same time, he turned around and talked and preached and sometimes agitated to the larger white community uh, the same thing. And here, here you are cutting 
people off from that, uh, the, the great values that you proclaim that we agree with, that we agree. This is the country we want to be a part of. We want to be full members of it. Then you have a, uh, Ada Sepiel Fisher, who was the first African-American student at the University of Oklahoma. Remarkably, not as an undergrad, but as a law school student. And I, I think you went to that law school. I'm sh- Hopefully, you heard about her when you, when you were there. And this was a woman who, for years, was kept out of there. And then they gave her, uh, when forced to, her own. Uh, first of all, they said, well, we're going to put you in the OU Law School satellite uh, edition up at Langston. <laughs> then they let her into OU, but then you have your own little roped off area, your own desk. Finally, she got the full rights. And, and this was a woman uh, who handled it with grace. And that's one of the things, by the way, I want to say. Part of the message to me mm-hmm. as a white person and a Christian is I look at people like Clara Looper. Ada Sipiel Fisher, Prentice Gott, who was the first African-American football player at University of Oklahoma, uh, became a tremendous player and a, a star in the National Football League. I see running through all those people a common thread of grace and the hope that comes from grace, that they gave the, us, in effect, our forefathers, the opportunity to come alongside them and be a part of them rather than being forced in an adversarial corner where they had to, to fight and either win or lose. And in fact, Clara Looper, her, you know, her hero was Martin Luther King, who she had met when he came to candidate as a pastor uh, at Cavalry Baptist church in the early fifties in Oklahoma City, as you probably know, didn't get the mm-hmm. job. They thought he was a good man, good potential, but, but too young. And she always <laughs> talked about, yeah, yeah. she always that talked about always 2020. Huh? <laughs> what's that? Hindsight's always twenty twenty, huh? Isn't it though? Isn't it though? I think he later agreed he was probably too young at that point. But you know, she talked about um, she always lifted his, him up as as a model that she followed while being arrested twenty six times and all the things that happened with her. Uh, and by the way, she caught flack not just from the white community but from many in the African American community who were afraid that she was jeopardizing what they already had. Uh, she caught it from all different directions. Uh, but she said, you know, if you can live, you can love. And she were, she insisted on following uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, uh, philosophy of, of nonviolence, not just not a resistance, but uh, just everything that they did. We're not going to return evil for evil. Uh, we're going to turn the other cheek. You know, we all talk about that, but then we make it a a kind of a figurative deal. Like, well, you know, generally speaking, you should be generous and all that. Well, Jesus said, if they hit you on one side of your head, turn and offer them the other one. And when I read that in, in Greek, I hate to say it, but that's what it says. And these people actually lived it. Uh, they actually did not return evil for evil. And so if they got hosed or if they got thrown in jail, they got called a bad name. Uh, if they didn't get service. Uh, if they got threatened, if they got beat up, for the most part, these leaders, uh, they responded in love, and they won. They won what they were after, the hope that they had that was in their heart that their children could have a better future, and that ultimately the really wise ones like Clara Looper and Martin Luther King Jr., they saw that it would be, 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 me, be better for all of us, people from all races, uh, when we were being Christ-like to one another. So I think uh, W.K. Jackson, a pastor— you know, I-44 there through Northeast Oklahoma City, uh, 
only those that are probably pretty old even know about the great Oklahoma City sanitation strike of, of 1969. That was something where African-Americans marched downtown, a uh, couple of thousand. There were hundreds of armed, uh, billy-clubbed Oklahoma City police, state, uh, state troopers, uh, sheriff, deputies. That could have been... Um, something unlike anything we've seen right on the doorsteps of the uh, city courthouse in Oklahoma City. And Clara Looper was there. W.K. Jackson got up. And when you'll read in volume two of the Oklahomans when it comes out, uh, you can also read in the archives of the Oklahoma newspaper, October 1969. Reverend Jackson saw the potential uh, for, you know, the potential powder keg that was all around him with emotion on so many people's hearts. And it's, I don't want to even try to do justice of what he said and did, but just suffice to say, he stood up as a Christian statesman and calmed things down and gave everyone an opportunity to act as Christians. And ultimately that, that strike, which was about people being paid less for being garbage collectors, we would call them back then, um, because of their skin color and other city jobs, the few that they had. That was resolved, and, and those inequities were were done away with. So people stood stood up with a message of hope and resolve, but also Christian love and forbearance, and, and it won the day. Wow. I would say maybe in the more recent history, if we had, do we just have another minute or two? Yep, I yep, could share yeah, a couple yeah, more going. recent ones. Yep, yep. Um, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing, of course, were – we're right on the 25th anniversary of that as well, you know. Mm. And um, one of the people that, uh, of, the, of the countless people that suffered so much uh, was a lady named Kathy Wilburn, who, um, and, and I think her married name now is Sanders, mm-hmm. who lost the precious little boys, uh, two and three-year-olds in that bombing. And uh, then she also lost her husband. Uh, within two years of, of cancer, but in her own words, he also died of a broken heart. And I'll tell you what, you and I have grandchildren, and for those that don't, it's a strange conundrum that you get to the latter chapters of your life, and these little people, you love them more than anybody you've ever known in your whole life. And you know, my wife and I laugh about how we both love Luke, our four-year-old grandson, more than we've ever loved anybody. There is just a just a dynamic there that's hard to describe. And Kathy lost both of those violently and horribly in the bombing. And yet to look at the trajectory of her life, and of course, who knows what suffering her own daughter went through uh, losing those children. And then Kathy lost her husband shortly thereafter. But if you move forward through the years as Kathy allowed God to get hold of her life, I'm, I'm, you know, going from her own words here, that how she's recounted it, to come to a point ultimately where she was in, and I don't know if it was one of the trials you were prosecuting, but it was one of the Terry Nichols trials, and she noticed this lonely, despairing little old lady sitting by herself every day, and it was Terry Nichols, one of the bombers' mother, Mm. and in a a momentous step, Mm. she reached out Mm. and went from being Oh, that's the lady that's the mother of the bomber that killed my grandsons to um, that's my friend so-and-so. And she said that the day came 
when she got on her knees and prayed for Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols. And she said, you know, I don't know if those prayers did anything for those guys. Of course, McVeigh uh, died, had already died, or maybe he was soon to die. But she said it did the world for me. And she knew I had. And when she stood at the memorial, those little chairs out there in front of her grandson's chairs with the son of one of the bombers. And she said, when I could stand there in front of those little boys' chairs and the son of one of the bombers wept on my chest, Mm. asking me to forgive him. And I loved him and wept with him. I knew that God had done a marvelous work in my heart. Oh, that's a profound story, John. I've I've actually read her book when uh, she several years ago when she was uh, she yes that was a grand story of uh, healing and forgiveness. I mean, uh, and boy, and I've seen it go both ways as we've all as we all have. But but oh my gosh! Well, you know, you know, let's let's I want uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about. When we think about someone generating hope to a city, uh, you brought up a guy that uh, really only passed away not very long ago, uh, Aubrey McClendon. To share with it, what was, what was it about Aubrey that shifted the, the trajectory of a, of, a, of a city? Well, what a, what a guy. And, you know, Aubrey McClendon, that's one of those names – you know, uh, think of names, not to compare them exactly, but you think of names like Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, you know, a name that just provokes strong feelings uh, in a number of different directions, depending on who you're talking to and their experience with them. And I found that on a localized basis that, uh, you know, not everybody likes Aubrey McClendon. And, and, and I've talked to people that, that despise the man uh, many people were varying, uh, of course, a large number never knew him and, and not only what they read and his big name, but, you know, uh, I was reminded a few years ago when Mark Green talked about Aubrey McClendon had a, a vision of hope, a secular vision, if you will, not that Aubrey was a secular person, but mm-hmm. that in effect, he had a secular civic vision that Oklahoma City could dare hope to be something more in a lot of ways. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he stepped up and he put his money and everything else where his mouth was, as, as we know on that Aubrey McClendon, whether it be making, you know, a, a, a patch of dirt that was the, the North Canadian river into the <laughs> Oklahoma river. <laughs> the river. Now the Olympic squads <laughs> trained for three different sports, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's premier venue in the, in the nation, whether it be, you know, the, the countless, uh, you know, uh, improvements and things of Oklahoma City and ultimately Oklahoma and, and in many ways resonated throughout America. But so I always knew, <laughs> I was kind of nervous, but I thought, you know, Aubrey McClendon is a person that I just felt hoping that God had called me to this job of writing these books. And, and you told me one time, you know, God has given you an assignment, John, and, you know, you don't have the option, I'm paraphrasing, you see, you don't have the option to just put that to the side or take it, you know, half, half scans, you're on assignment from God. So over the years, I've become convinced that for whatever reason, God did assign me to write these Oklahoma history books. Not that it means everything in them is right or perfect, but he wanted me to do it. And 
living that, eating, sleeping, breathing, and living that for 15 years now, uh, I'm, I hope that I have, have attained a kind of a sense, a pulse of what that history is, the people and the stories that not only inform that history, that, that project it, but that need to be told. And, and for a number of years, I've known that all, something about Aubrey McClendon, not because he was rich or famous or any particular though, I thought somehow Aubrey McClendon is a big part of this story. And as I got a little bit more recent future and studied him more, uh, it became clear to me that Aubrey McClendon was the late 20th century, early 21st century version of the exact wild, audacious uh, people that settled this state to begin with, again, mm-hmm. over those multiple generations. Uh, you, you know, you're not people in land runs and corner Parker and warriors like that. These are not necessarily politically correct bunch of people. These were folks that were audacious, had a vision of hope for their people, and they set foot where others feared to tread. And to me, Aubrey McClendon was the modern version of that was unflappable. You know, the guy lost over $2 billion, which was most of what he had on, on margin calls from Goldman Sachs after the, the mortgage subprime mortgage disaster in the late 2000s, eight and nine. And he came back. He lost his job at the company, famous company, Chesapeake, that he founded, probably for some good reasons he lost that job. And he, he came back. He came back up to the day that he died. And so uh, friends of ours had, uh, through the years, had said, well, if you ever you know do something on McClendon, you need to talk to Chris Gordon. And you know, Chris, he's one of your and my fraternity brothers from OU back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't talked to Chris in a long time, but I was able to hook up with Chris. And apparently Chris and Aubrey were very close friends. And as people read in, in volume two of the Oklahomans, uh, there are things about Aubrey that none of the press and media ever knew about. And probably because they just talked to people other than Aubrey and others, and they wrote their own stories. But one of the things that stuck with me that Chris Gordon, who who was always a solid guy when you and I knew him back in college, but became one of the top oil and gas men in Oklahoma in the Southwest, just a a, a shrewd, tough, uh, even killed, sharp thinking man who who has been a leader in Oklahoma for a long time and. And he told me a lot of interesting things about Aubrey, but and, and he told me in kind of Chris's low-key, dispassionate manner, but he got to one subject and he could hardly speak. He was basically weeping in the interview and tears coming down his, street, uh, down his face, Chris was. And that was about Aubrey McClendon on the subject of giving, giving what he had to others. And, you know, People, especially those that maybe were not necessarily fans of Aubrey for one reason or another, I go, well, yeah, you can give when you have a lot to give. But Chris said, no, you know, this was like a widow's might giving. Now, I can't imagine how that could be for a, mil- a, billion- a millionaire, much less a billionaire. But Chris said this was the prevailing notion that Chris carried forward from his many years of close friendship with Aubrey McClendon. And that was when they were talking about giving and donating and contributing to those that had less than they did, that had needs. And Chris went along with a lot of it. He said, one day, Aubrey looked him in the eye and said, I don't think you're getting it, Chris. Chris said, what do you mean? He goes, it's not about writing a check or saying you did something or being on a list on a wall. The issue is, if it doesn't hurt, you haven't given. 
if it doesn't hurt, you haven't given. Mm. And Chris said, I still don't even know what that means. But Aubrey McClendon knew what it meant. Mm. Mm. Well, I tell you, John, uh, yeah, uh, the, 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 the stories, I mean, we could go on and on and on, and, and perhaps we should another time. But, but what, what I'm hearing, uh, there's, there's a common thread, as you talked a little bit, through so many of these folks and, and they just had a, a vision for a better tomorrow and they, they, it's like they bubbled that up and out to other people. Uh, whether, whether it's uh, David Folsom in the 1830s or Aubrey McClendon in the, in the uh, late 20th and early 21st century, it's, it's the same thing. They're lifting others up in, in in audacious ways, so and in that the in that kind of the heart of the Christian gospel is that running through all these people we've talked about, they were not satisfied either with things the way they were or with themselves, and that's where a lot of people get off track. They want to change everybody else. You know, mm-hmm. I can point to somebody of a different social caste or race or whatever. I can just book chapter and verse what's wrong with them, but has. Um, has the work begun in the household of God? And so I think that's why the people that we've named, they were willing not just to say, well, you know, I see things that never were to use the old Bernard Shaw and RFK phrase and dream of things that never were or that might could be. And they, they had these dreams and they were willing to put in uh, the labor and, and the commitment to toward change so that the people they cared about came after them would have a better future, but they were incessantly about improving themselves. And, and of course, most of these people, at least we, we know are Christians. And so in the laboratory of God, God search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there be any way, wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. That's a daily, sometimes hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute deal. And you've taught me that as, as well as anyone. And so to take the takeaways for us today for hope is to to have the sensitivity and the compassion and the vision to look around and think, hey, it's not my job to be comfortable in this affluent society. It's my job to help others. But to help others, I first need to begin and then continue working and let God working on myself before I before I go to business on anybody else. Boy, that's a good one, John. In fact, in fact, just that whole comfort thing. I got to confess, uh, uh, even last week I was thinking about that and, and just, and asking, in fact, in fact, uh, asking God, Hey, forgive me, forgive me for, um, uh, acquiescing to the comfortable because, oh my gosh, uh, that is the great, uh, opiate. That's, there's the great opiate, uh, is just being comfortable and not really, uh, being provoked. Well, these are people, we talked about today that you're right. Uh, they were unwilling to just exist in the comfortable. So, so folks, you you all listening, um, you, you, I hope you've picked up that so many of the people we've talked about. I mean, they came from nothing. That you were. They, they, these are folks that that in many ways you would think, well, there is no hope. Um, but but they generated it. They saw a goal. They set a pathway, and they and they executed the willpower to engage on that and then inspired others 
to go with him on that. John, you've got a, a website. It's johnjdwyer.com. It's John, J-O-H-N, the initial J, Dwyer, D-W-Y-E-R, just one word, johnjdwyer.com website. And you invite people that if they got to, if they want to reach out and get, get on there, you, you've got some great, um, I really enjoy getting those occasional vignettes uh, on email of just Oklahoma history of, you know, just some, some profile of someone. And it's just fascinating. People I've never heard of. I go, oh my golly, uh, Red River Dwyer, <laughs> which I always like Red River, you, the Red, Red River Dwyer at gmail.com. So send John a note at redriverdwire at gmail.com and he'll get you on that history blog list. Well, John, my, my, my dear friend uh, and, and brother, it's just always a treat. Uh, you know, we could, we could sit here for a long time jawboning here, but then we'd probably lose uh, scads of people. They would not be as fascinated by, by that as what you've already said. So thanks so much uh, for all you're doing. We, we're just, we're fortunate. We're fortunate. Uh, that that you would uh, be a part of us for for our program today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, brother. God bless you. God thank bless you for you. helping me in my life and many, many other people. So let me give you some concluding thoughts. If Hope were a person in the room, what would she say to us? Well, I think, first of all, she'd say that you are fearfully and wonderfully made that an unchanging God designed, built you, and sent you into a moment of history as part of his loving strategy to transform a chaotic world and, and make it good again. You are called as change agents. Hope would tell you that she flourishes when we listen to God and set goals for our lives that press us further toward becoming that person God has always been willing for us to become. Hope would tell you to set action steps towards achieving those goals. They don't have to be giant steps. Start with baby steps so you can be encouraged along the way. But hope would also tell you that you've got to not just make plans to step, but you must exercise the willpower to just take that next right step. Step by step by step gets you to the destination God has for your life. It's the long obedience in the same direction. And finally, hope would tell you that God sees us not as we are, but as we could become if we will dare. It's the same for our communities. As followers of Jesus, you are a sent people and all humans should flourish because God's kids are in town. What evil thing dies because you exist? No one else is coming. You're the generation sent to your community in this moment. You're it. Press into God's purposes for your lives, and you will discover that hope abounds and that Jesus is still the God of the impossible. Thank you for joining us today on Hope Leads. I'm Wes Lane. Once again, I'd be honored if you would take a moment to rate this podcast, review it, subscribe, and share it with someone who needs hope. We want to thank Brianna Gaither for the song, I Won't Rest Until, from her album, Vanity. Remember, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who is willing for us to live meaningful lives of profound impact. I invite you to just show up and watch God show off.